Set yourself a New Year goal, they said. It'll be fun. <sighs> Perhaps swimming in the Irish Sea wasn't such a good idea. Set a more achievable goal, like taking control of your finances with personalised money insights in the Bank of Ireland app. It'll help keep track of your spending, like changes to bills, or you might have too many subscriptions. See your tailored money insights, because your financial well-being is our priority. Bank of Ireland. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Terms and conditions apply. Great. There goes my towel. The Left Wing, brought to you by Bank of Ireland, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Never stop competing. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of The Left Wing with Luke Fitzgerald. Matewa, O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald. Oh, Fitzgerald is coming back inside! Leicester have another! Darcy, O'Driscoll oh. through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, step and score! Hello and welcome to the Left Wing Independent.ie's rugby podcast in association with Leia Healthcare. I'm Will Slattery, delighted to be joined as always in studio by my illustrious co-host Luke Fitzgerald. Luke, hello. <laughs> Willie boy, how are we? Willie boy, yeah, no, not too bad. No, good to be here. Um, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, looking forward to our guest. I think he might be, this is a long show because I think we've had a few good guests, but... Yeah. I'm going to say our best guest so far and our mo- definitely our most interesting. Well, we've gone off the board with this one. We've gone away from rugby to just a, a kind of a life story in a way. Yeah. it's a Is it a lifestyle piece? Yeah. Is it a, it's, it's, a li- it's kind of a, yeah, a lifestyle piece. It's got a bit of everything. We're trying to branch out and, you know, into maybe doing a, yeah. a kind of a, one of those afternoon shows on RTE perhaps or we have a mix of sport and, you know, people talking about their lives. Yeah, well, there could be, there'll be laughs in this one. Luke there'll and Will. Tears, there'll yeah. be tears. There's a bit of determination in there. Like there's the grit. Yeah. I, so, I know. Like this, this, like, look, we've, we've, do you want to, yeah, right? I, so in a few you minutes, in. in a few minutes, we're going to have former Leinster and Connacht second row and Breve second row. And Breve second row. And, and INA. INA. Yeah. Yeah. Great pronunciation. Damien Brown, he completed a mammoth 63-day solo row from the Canary Islands all the way to Antigua across the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know if you follow him on Instagram at Adolstock, you would have or Elstock rather, you would have seen some of his videos where he by the end of it looked like Tom Hanks was Castaway. There was definitely a Castaway vibe. <laughs> That's there. actually so accurate. Like when I saw when I saw it before and after, he actually looked about ten years older by the end of it. And look, this thing is just an incredible story. He just he did a, just after completing a solo row across the Atlantic. But as Will said, go to his Instagram feed. Like it's unbelievable. Like you just it'll, it'll be under Damien Brown. Um, it's just. Unbelievable! Like, like he, he's been all over the yeah, world. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Like last year, he did this like mammoth marathon across the Sahara. It's like five marathons in six days. Was it marathon like day Sam yeah, or something? Yeah, It's uh, it's uh, you know he's been to Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all these places doing various all over Africa feats. And he did as well. I mean, obviously, it's worth saying he's like a lot of charity work, and he's obviously he did the row on behalf of three charities, which I'm sure he'll be able to name. Um, like what was he like in training? Was he? <laughs> he's, he honestly, he is such a cool bloke. Okay. He's really like real relaxed. Probably a good good character. Obviously, hard as nails, um, but just a good fella. Nice guy. Really easy to talk to. Um, you know, really hard. Like obviously, you know, hard, like he's tough. Like he's he's tough as all boots. Like, he's like when I heard the story, I just presumed he was a little bit insane. <laughs> Look, I'm sure there has to be a part of me like that enjoys going to a dark place. Um, and definitely enjoys your own company. I mean, he was 63 days at sea, so mm. I mean that's fairly impressive to be able to spend that amount of time on your own. Um, 
so yeah, look, it's it's. I'm really looking forward to this one. I think uh, there'll be something in it for everyone. I think people mightn't be able to, like, you know, I think lots of people, and I'm, I'm definitely in this bracket myself, won't be able to... Uh, I, I, it's a hard story to connect to because it's just so out there. It's so tough. It's so much further away from anything that I've ever done. And I'm sure that anyone else has ever done who's listening. But I push myself quite hard. But yeah, yeah. But there's definitely times in your <laughs> life when you're going like you go through tough spots, and like this guy's just after. Like I'm sure you'll have some advice for you know how to get through these things, some coping mechanisms or whatever. In in what is, you know, it's constant survival mode for whatever 63 days, battling the elements. So I'm battling yourself. So I'm like I'm really interested to hear hear the story. What is the most physically tough kind of? moment you had in rugby like when you were most shattered like a training session or a fitness session uh oh <laughs> johnny o'brien always tells a funny story i i actually we were training for the 2011 world cup um <laughs> and i my body just completely collapsed but there was we did it in two groups and um <laughs> i ended up cramping so badly i used to suffer really badly throughout my career with cramps and i cramped so badly i was in such bad shape after one of the sessions that when the second group was coming out i was pushing these things along <laughs> like uh, like kind of like a sled push both my arms were in full cramp like <laughs> so i pushed this thing and then I were, we had to do a run after, but I, I I couldn't move my arms. So I was like trying to run like back, like finish off a, a sprint. <laughs> just completely like, that was my, definitely my daughter. I couldn't, I, you had to be there, but Sean O'Brien tells the story very well. But uh, <laughs> arms, both arms cramped uh, Both arms cramping, stuck down by my sides, but I couldn't even do, I couldn't even straighten them because when I was straightening them, the back, like my triceps would, would cramp. And then when I was bending them, my, my biceps would cramp. It was uh, like, but it was one of those, just one of those awful, awful sessions. You're literally just doing it just to completely wreck yourself. And they used to pair you off with a partner. Who are you with? Uh, I can't remember. I think it might have been like a Gav Duffy for, for one of them and someone else. I don't know. But I remember during the session, they used to do this kind of wrestling part. And I think Gav or whoever it was, they weren't doing the, they were injured or something. They, they were coming back from an injury. So they weren't doing the wrestle. So I ended up doing the wrestle with one of the strength and conditioning coaches who was obviously completely mustered. So I then had to go in and race one of the one of the other guys. Like, I don't know who it was. I think it was Gavin. And I remember being unbelievably, like I was seriously thick about it. I was like, this fucker is like, he was doing some exercise in between, but the, the strength and conditioner was trying to obviously beat the crap out of me. Yeah. Trying to prove something while I was absolutely shattered. And I remember just being like, I was so, I was I was real raw about it. I was, I was not, I felt bad about it, but I was obviously completely spent. My, my the way my fitness worked, I was kind of anaerobic. So I was able to do a big, like a, like a really good, powerful movement, like a big sprint, but then I needed a big break. So doing things constantly just, break me it absolutely busts me so um that was my worst one and the worst match that the most physically worst match, match. Uh, i had actually a good the, probably the new zealand game in 2013 and it was actually i played um, you were a replacement i came on on for i'm gonna say it was like 45 minutes or something for drico but i had the biggest uh, maybe it was 50 maybe it was 50 minutes or something like that but i had the, the highest workload of of uh, any of the backs in the second half uh or it could have been anyone in the second it was like it was a i I was in the top for work done during the period, but I was I gave that everything I had. There was a there was a four minute uh, period of play at the end where it was one of the worst I've ever felt. But I actually did, I had some good involvements in the last bit actually, uh, and throughout throughout that, I remember Joe actually mentioning it. So, you know, you don't realize I was just like, geez, I must be really unfit or something. But I, I just never got a chance to get my second wind. The game was so fast paced, and that was the really tough part because they were kind of hanging onto the ball for long periods. We were just hanging in there and um yeah i remember being really really pleased with my contribution um and it was good to see it in the numbers but that was probably the worst period i've felt i just felt like there was no chance to recover people always talk about 
and certainly I think so too or, or definitely updated that that second test that we've talked about a lot against South Africa was probably certainly watching look like one of the most physically brutal games I don't know maybe I don't I know kind if of you felt were in... more the other way I felt like it was a fairly brutal game I still hadn't kind of come into my, my own like I was still a young kid then I was 21 um, like some of so the, the, hits, the, the hits felt big and the South African guys feel feel a bit different they're, they're built a bit different to us they've got that uh, kind of Africans a lot of them are Africans guys so they've got a big kind of farming stock kind of you know the Dutch people are like really big people I think on average no no apparently it is like, look, look it up honestly they're meant to be they're <laughs> quite big like the average height in that they're big people um, and I think like they they kind of come from that stock. They're really big people, really strong, and um, you really feel the hits. I remember I remember towards the end of my career, I got a bit better at kind of like you get a bit bigger, you get a bit stronger. But I was young then. I definitely felt the hits, even though I was able to compete fine with people my own age. Dutch men are the tallest on the planet. I just looked it up on my iPhone. Oh no, I was Jesus looking Christ. at it there. No, well, I, I, I you know forgive no, me for not for believing you. But seriously, they're they're huge people. So that's the kind of stock that the the, the Africans people come from. Very so they're surprised. big people. Um and uh yeah that was really physical that game uh, I mean playing at altitude is really tough it's it's funny I remember watching that game at the time and when Brian Driscoll made that big hit on Rousseau being like he buried him. being like oh that what was a hundred percent a red card yeah I was gonna say <laughs> at the time I was thinking oh what a great hit and then I watch it now it's like it's a complete red, complete red card <laughs> no arms he just goes in fairness what it's like at the time like, though that was allowed you see, man you want to see Rousseau in person he is an absolute monster like that takes some hit like Draco in fairness to him for a small guy. He had like to go he, off as well, though. <laughs> yeah, but that was the... Like, it's funny. Like, people talk about loads of things about Draco, but uh, he... Man, he is hard as nails. He has a weird place he can go to in terms of... Like, he is reckless at times with his own body. Uh, like, remember that game against England, the Grand Slam year? He got so many, like, late hits and stuff and was getting smashed. I thought he made a meter of those ones at the time, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that. I'm going to come out and say that. I thought... That some of them... One of them wasn't that bad. It was Ricky Flutie hit him, I thought. It was, it was good. He Armin made, hit him a late one as well. Though. Yeah, but he kind of... he got We got pens from them. They were good. He milked them a little bit. Drico's... <laughs> if you know Drico, he's hard as nails. Like, he's not... Like, he'd be well able to take a hit. And I want to add so his name to that list. Remember last week I talked about the dream guest list, and we listed a couple of people. Drake will never come on. He does off the ball. Well, I know, but he'd be good. He'd be good to get on. No, sure, he couldn't come on. Uh, no, he and he's a good guest. I think he's like I look at him and I think, uh, you know, obviously he's more experienced than me. He finished his career a bit earlier than me, but uh, I think he's really grown into the media stuff. He looks really polished now. Um, so it's good to see him doing doing great, doing great work there. You know, and he pulls in. Not that he really needs to. I mean, he's well, seems to be like he's he's obviously well, he got, he has uh, that gig with the sevens, name. the HSBC. You know, that looks like a good crack, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at his, his Instagram. He looked like he was having a bit of crack, but um, yeah, no. That's like to come back to the point. The thing I always admired most about Drico is like he's yeah, silky skills and all that. But um, you know, I've seen people with better footwork. I've seen people with you know who are bigger, who are stronger, better athletes. But I tell you, I haven't met too many people who are tougher. Um, and that's for me. I I love playing with guys who are like that. Um, you know himself, Paul O'Connell. Like they just they bring teams along with them. They're just so, like you just want them in the coal face. They're just reckless with their bodies. Well, speaking of physical toughness and endurance, it's now time to bring on our guest. Delighted to be joined on the line by former Leinster and Connacht second row Damien Brown. Damien, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. And has the body recovered? Like I saw a photo of you getting off the boat at the very end. You did look very, very Tom Hanks. Very Tom, very Tom Hanks. Hanks. You had a big Cast beard. Your weather beaten. <laughs> your hands were fairly mangled. Uh, like, like how, how was the body for the few days afterwards? And like now, do you look somewhat normal? <laughs> um, yeah, I hope so. Anyway, um, but uh, those first few days were um, pretty, um, pretty intense. Trying to get kind of back to 
body kind of get used to solid ground and um, really struggled with a few things like sleeping on a, on a normal bed. And um, when I wake up in the morning, those kind of first 10 or 15 minutes, like the whole room was swaying, like, um, like the, basically I was still on a boat, you know, and I'd have to kind of clutch beds and chairs and walls to kind of get around for, for that 10 or 15 minutes. But, um, after about a week, that kind of went away, and uh, most of most of the kind of uh, deterioration and the ailments cleared up. Apart from my fingers, uh, my knuckles and that on my fingers are still, even to this day, are still really sore. You know, just from you know the hours and hours and hours of clutching the the handles of the oars. Yeah, how many how many uh, hours would you be rowing a day during your journey? Uh, I'd say I averaged around twelve hours in total a day, and then. Only kind twelve, <laughs> only twelve, yeah, David. <laughs> yeah, a bit late. <laughs> what were you doing for the other twelve hours of the day, man? <laughs> you know, it's a good question. Um, I was. Uh, I think the maximum I did one day was nineteen, Jesus. and the minimum was probably around eight or nine. Um, oh there was God. some really big, big conditions earlier on in, in the first kind of week and two weeks, and. Um, it was it was near on impossible to row at night. Uh, it was just completely disorientating. And um, the minute my steering went, which was on day seventeen, um, <laughs> rowing at night just became a nightmare. Like I mean, because you have to see where you're putting the oars when you because when your steering goes, you have to steer with the oars. So yeah, and you nearly have to see where you're placing them. And when you can't see two two meters in front of you, um, you're nine and a half times out of ten getting the placement wrong in the water. That means you're basically getting an oar down into the quad or the shin, or unfortunately, sometimes you get the kind of end of it into your ribs. So there's not only only so long you can kind of stay doing that before you pack it in. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, just just to, to rewind a bit, like what prompted you to take on such a ridiculous challenge? Like I know you've done, I guess, a similarly physically taxing thing, you know, marathon in the, the Sahara, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what what prompted this one? Well, I had this, had this in my head for about 12 years. Um, I read a book about um, called The Crossing by James Cracknell, the British Olympian drawer, and Ben Fogel, who did it as a pair in 2005. So probably the year after that, I read the book, and uh, I just knew it was for me. Like, I, literally everything about it appeals to me, the, the challenge, the adventure, the kind of extremes of it all, you know, and the, the journey itself. So, um, yeah, so uh, about 18 months, pre-race um, I committed to it and just started training and putting plans in place for, for it to happen because it just doesn't it doesn't just happen you can't just rock up it takes a lot of work just to get to the start line yeah what sort of training do you do if you if you could say obviously you, you ended up doing 12 hours a day rowing or, or something like that how do you how do you train for something like that well really you can't you know it's all about just trying to get in the best kind of physical shape like you still try and you know you're trying to be fit for purpose so I did a lot of work on the ERC, uh, which is the indoor rower, but I didn't do a, like a lot of long um, kind of endurance type stuff because, well, first thing, it just bores the hell out of me. Staying any longer than about 40 minutes on an ERG is like hell on earth, I think, for anyone. So um, I did a lot of kind of high-intensity work on the ergometer and then a lot of strength work in the gym, lower body, upper body strength. And like I said, just tried to get in the best physical shape I could in that 18-month period. 
And Damien, like it's it's so interesting. Like we've come from obviously the the rugby background together, and you get all the different shapes and sizes. And like you said, you need to be fit for purpose. And coming from the background we've come from, there's all different shapes and sizes play rugby. I mean, first thing that strikes me is obviously the length of time that you're out there, and probably the quality of food that you can eat uh, when you're out there. Like, do you, do you try and carry an extra an extra bit of weight, or you know, just to you know, for example, if you're I don't know, just to, to keep the energy reserves up or an extra bit of fat. Is there anything kind of unusual about training for it that um, that you did to, to help yourself, I suppose, get through the challenge? Yeah, I, I tried to go into the, um, the very start, first day one, I tried to be as heavy as I could possibly be. Now, um, I had put in place like all sorts of training programs and, and um, meal plans and that to kind of do it gradually. But I kind of realized that I could... I could kind of get as heavy as I well I needed I felt I needed to be in the last kind of month six weeks you know so that's when I really started just eating loads and what helped with that what what that helped with as well is because that's when I was kind of peaking in my um, end of my training phase and that's when the kind of weights were at their heaviest and the intensity was at its most you know so um, so and then I tapered about well, I, I, I tapered, which means I stopped training about, uh, well, it ended up in about three weeks before the race. So when you're not doing any training then and you're just still eating the same volume of food, you know, you put on you put on so much weight so quickly. So I kind of was a, probably about 10 kilos heavier then. Um, I walk around that on, on day one, which is like 130 kilos. And, um, and that helps, you know, that helps because... Um, Especially with my leverage and that weight and a bit of strength, you know, I can get really good kind of power through the the oars and and um, and kind of um, you know my uh, yeah my endurance was pretty good even coming into it. So I felt like it was in a really good place mentally and physically on day one where I wanted to be. I read somewhere that you didn't know how to swim before you did this. Is that true? Yeah, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what if you're falling out of the boat? Like, <laughs> oh, don't fall out of the boat then, Will. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just make sure you don't, oh yeah. God. Well, to be honest with you, it wouldn't matter if you were Michael Phelps. If you fell out um, out there in the middle of the Atlantic, you're, you're brown bread. Like, I mean, the boat goes one way very quickly and, and you go the other way, basically. You just get separated. So you have to be incredibly vigilant and, and safety conscious out there. So we have a line um, on the boat called the Jack Stay, which runs kind of parallel to the um, your seated position. And uh, you just clip in and out of dash. So I'd be wearing a harness at all times, and then I'd have a, a, a three-point um, line. So basically two to the Jack Stay, one onto my harness. And the minute I come out of my cabin, that's the first thing I do every time, you know, because... She's just such a beast. I mean, like, she's constantly challenging you and hitting you with stuff and knocking you down. And, you know, you cannot take any chances out there. So, um, you know, you, you don't basically, unless you have some sort of death wish, you know, you make sure you're clipped in, you make sure your harness is on and and um, and just be, like I said, safety conscious. And I, I mean this question in the best possible way, but you must be a bit mad to try something like this. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't feel it, but it seems to be a common consensus uh, when I tell people what I did like or when I was when I was in the run up to it. But uh, yeah, you you meet some very interesting characters. Some people have done some uh, amazing stuff around the world in in all sorts of endeavors. You know, when who also take on this this challenge. You know, so um, and there seemed to be uh, uh, there seemed to be some sort of. Uh, 
I don't know, people seem to think us solos in particular were, were crazy, you know, because in the race there was other boats, but there were pairs and three-man and four-man boats. So there was only five of us solos who <laughs> were trying to attempt it on our own. And like I mean, like the, this, I don't know if we want to get into it this early, but may as well just delve. It's the it, it's the first thing that springs to my mind when we're talking about the solos is, like, spending that amount of time on your own. I mean, how do you find that? I mean, how how did you find it? Uh, what were what are the coping mechanisms? I know you you you, you had the, the the sat phone as well. I know Owen O'Malley was was a big help, and I'm sure your family were probably big helps during that as well. But there must have been big bouts where you're you're not speaking to anyone and, and you're just at one with nature. I mean, uh, look if you look at your Instagram, anyone look at look at Damien's Instagram. I mean, you can tell he, there's a wanderlust in there. You've been all over the world, all over, like and, and you do a lot of the travel on your own, but. Like, how did you find, how do you find that? I mean, that seems like a real long period of time to, to not have much human contact at all. Probably no human contact, really. No, not, yeah. Um, I had, I put the sat phone on for an hour a day. So kind of nine to 10 at night. And that's when I talked to people. And um, and I, I did become quite reliant on it. You know, it was a very important part of the challenge. Um but I, I'm very comfortable on my own. You know, I, I've done a lot of, like you said, alluded to, I've done a lot of travel on my own. And, um, I've, I've no issues like with myself, um, or I'm pretty, I have a pretty strong kind of relationship with myself. But at the same time, I'd never spent anywhere near this amount of time uh, alone and not speaking to people. So it was a complete um, emotional roller coaster at times. You know, it was just, you know, you're constantly trying to get into a kind of neutral state, but like, you were fluctuating negatively and positively between that. And it's, it's all depended on, you know, um, things that kind of, you're dependent so much on your mental kind of um, state, you know, and, and what you were thinking about and uh, what you were saying to yourself. So I was constantly trying to bring myself back to that neutral state or get out of the negative one at least and try and bring myself to a positive one. So I've done a, like I've done a lot of visualization uh and a um, pre-race, you know, in that 18-month period. And I'd also done a lot of affirmations, you know, so I'd use them on the boat, you know, so I'd be just telling myself positive statements to try and bring myself into a positive mindset or or um, I'd be just trying to kind of control um, my self-talk and my breathing and my effort and my... Um, and my position on the oars, my technique, and, and trying to avoid being so kind of outcome-orientated. Because I found when I was outcome-orientated, when I was thinking about things that were out of my control, that's when I got real negative. And that's when I kind of started feeling sorry for myself. And the self-pity set in. And, and, you know, that's when you start getting really kind of in dark places. Like, so... Now, all that been said and done, I would have loved to have a little switch on the side of my head where I could have just turned off my brain for like 12 or 14 hours a day and just rode. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't have that luxury. So you gotta, you gotta learn to kind of, um, have pro you gotta have processes to, to help yourself mentally. Well, sticking on the castaway team, did you bring a rugby ball and name him Gilbert and keep him with you the whole time <laughs> to cope? No, <laughs> no, that was one of uh, that was one of my mistakes. I I had that in my mind actually. You actually missed a trick <laughs> there. I'm serious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Paint a little face on him and could have had him beside you, and you could have been talking away to him for sixty three days. <laughs> A little bit of company, yeah. I, I didn't have really anything. I had a bit of bird life from time to time. You try and have a conversation with, but uh, 
It wasn't consistent as uh, a rugby ball sitting there on deck. <laughs> and here, like, I mean, I, mean I, I heard just a few of the things from, from the trip, just from uh, just talking to Owen O'Malley briefly about it. But, I mean, tell us, I mean, there was, was there, there was a capsizing earlier on, early on in the, in, in, was it at night as well? Um, well, it was early morning. It was about morning. seven in the morning. Yeah, I had, um, so that was day 14. I had two capsizes in the one day. Um, so these boats are designed to self-right. So as long as the cabin doors are, you know, shut properly, um, they will act as an air pocket. And the minute they go over, because all the weight is in underneath the deck of the boat, they'll just flip over with the weight and the air pocket. So basically, I was fast asleep in the cabin um, 7 a.m. And the first thing I knew about this capsize is when I was literally catapulted headfirst into the, the side of the cabin. Um, and I split myself in three to just three small kind of cuts, but there was a lot of blood, a lot of, obviously, you can imagine disorientation. I, I literally just woke up as I hit the thing, um, or because I hit the thing, uh, the side of the cabin. And, you know, there's a lot of netting that holds kind of stuff that I use during the day, and that was all on top of me. The bedding was on top of me, and there was some water coming into the cabin through a little hole with a, for the water maker. So, yeah, it was kind of pandemonium there and you know you're just trying to process what happened and then you know these are split second decisions and trying to then put a plan in place how to you know what's the priority so i just had to stop the blood and then you know figure out what happened and you kind of go out and deck then and your fingers crossed you're like you haven't lost anything really valuable like oars or you know the seat or your trainers or you know so thankfully all that was in place and uh it was just about getting water off the deck and just get everything kind of back in place. Like the chain, the group chains of the anchors were like hanging over the side and the life raft was nearly in the ocean. So, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty crazy <laughs> morning. And what was the, re- I don't know, when you talked to people that night on the satellite phone or anything, like what was the reaction of your your friends or family? I, I don't know what they thought beforehand, but after seeing your face and, and I guess you're telling them about the capsizing, were they a bit worried for you? Yeah, I think... <laughs> You know, I think you can. I can say pretty uh, fairly that my mother was worried from the minute I told her about it until the minute I stepped on land in Antigua. <laughs> so I probably wasn't doing anybody any favors by sending uh, videos home of my head cut and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I think it was, uh, you know, I had the I had the system there, and it was an important part of the um, my journey. So um, it was, you know, uh, it was important to share it as well. But um, yeah, no, everyone was everyone was pretty um, worried, but. You know, as I said, even on the video at the time, I said, like, you couldn't ask for a better person to be in that sort of predicament. So, uh, you know, I was kind of trying to reassure people not to worry. Because I felt, you know, I felt the harder that thing got, the harder the journey became, the more I relished it, you know, the more I grew into um, the person I love to be, you know, in those times of adversity. And, you know, when Everton is against you, you know, that's when you see what you're made of. That's what you see when you're, what your character is about. And, and I, I love that. Um, um, was like what was that the the low point I guess or or the toughest moment or, or was there another one that was that forced you to dig even deeper? Day one, day one was an absolute nightmare. Um, uh, it was definitely the the hardest day of the whole lot because uh, basically everything that could go wrong went wrong. Um, I like I said I tapered, but I um, I tapered. I made a mistake in my preparation in that I I I had. A, too much time between my, the end of my training and the start of the race, so I'd almost, I'd almost detrained. My body had detrained, and then when I started with a bang, like I really started fast out of the gates, and 
I kind of passed four boats um, within the first kind of five or six hours because I was the last boat to start. So I was trying to kind of pass people and plow through the field and get myself in a, in a good place in the race. But like then everything just went wrong. Like my body just completely shut down. Like every every major muscle group in my lower body started severely cramp, like cramping like I've never experienced before. Uh, then all the calluses on my hands tore off and my feet, my heels blistered. And then I had severe, well, no, I just had seasickness as so I was constantly vomiting. Um, so when all that was going wrong, I was like, okay, you need a little bit of rest. So I tried to rest up for an hour and my boat got blown back about a mile towards the island. I got up and I made up that mile. It kind of took me about three hours to make that mile up because it was headwinds. You know, we were, I was rolling into the wind, which is really hard. Um, and then I put out a thing called a power anchor, which is like a parachute uh, that sits um, out the front of the boat and underneath the water, but it holds about two tons of water. And what it's meant to do is hold you in place when you're in deep water and you can't use a ground anchor. Unfortunately, I deployed it wrong and I got blown back even when I was asleep on, on it. so I had the whole psych- I had the whole psychological battle then of um, thinking I've you know my ground my uh, power anchor doesn't work and what's going to happen when I'm out in the middle of the ocean uh, faced with a storm because that's when you that's when you normally use them you know I'm going to get blown back tens of miles and I'm going to lose so much ground and yeah and then I you know it took me another kind of five or six hours to get back to that point where I was originally, like maybe nine hours earlier. So it was unbelievable physical and mental battle and just trying to stay anywhere positive. And, and how, know, how did you figure to, out about that anchor, Damon? Like, did you make a call to someone or did you, like, how, did you just figure it out yourself or, because I, I assume it had well, to, it had to, you have to figure that out, presumably during the race. Fortunately enough, I never had to use it again. Um, oh. We had such crazy conditions. Um, that it was all following winds after that. You know, they were huge conditions, like big waves, like nine, eight, nine meter swells and kind of like 25, 30 knot winds, but they were all behind. So I didn't really have to, I didn't have to use the power anchor again, but if I had, I had the luxury of kind of, um, I had two people who were helping me and supporting me. I, could, I would have just rang them and got them basically to talk me through it like I was a five-year-old. Oh, uh, one question I have is that you know when obviously when you went to bed at night you were sleeping in the cabin but how did you, how are you able to sleep when I presume your boat is still getting hit with humongous waves like how how are you able to get any sleep when the boat is just being kind of shown around like that you know uh, early in the race um, because it was such there was in such a survival mode in all those early conditions like the first two or three weeks that um, when I crawled into bed I was just so sapped mentally and physically that I, I mean I slept like I was you know, dead to the world um, later on in the race I noticed that like you would wake up and um, when things hit the cabin because there was some big conditions later in the race and they were kind of you know you'd really get hit around um, uh, on, in some of those conditions you know big waves hitting the cabin and that they would wake you up but I mean again you're just so tired from all the from been out in the sun underneath a like kind of 35 degree sun every day for you know seven eight nine hours and then all the rowing of course and then just the stress of it all as well so you actually sleep really well at times did you ever get sunburned oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that seems like the least of your worries at this stage <laughs> oh, just speaking from yeah. experience when i go on holidays i'm just you know i hate getting sunburned so i just thought i'd ask yeah I, listen you know I'm, I'm actually really interested i heard a few little nuggets when i was talking to uh to to own uh, about your your trip um 
like so and you kind of touched on it as well maybe talking about uh, some of the birds and stuff like that i mean did you have any kind of big experiences with like with wildlife out there anything Sharks. like anything amazing did you see any i mean did i hear you saw a whale or something like that for, yeah. For any, yeah any any one that stick out yeah definitely the whale and uh so i was just after that capsize i um i told you about when i got hit on the head or when i split my head open I was sitting on the deck and, you know, kind of just all a bit all over the shop, like, but trying to remedy the deck and get water. Push. And, uh, yeah, I just heard the noise of the blowhole and uh, I looked up to my right and then I saw the dorsal fin and it just swam kind of around the boat, around the back of the boat. And basically it circled the boat five to six times. And at one stage, <laughs> believe it or not, it stuck its head up and made eye contact with me with, me, with its left eye. <laughs> I was like, I was just like, nobody's going to fucking believe this. Like, I don't. <laughs> so, this is just insane. Like, uh, you know, it's proper, the hairs in the back of your neck standing up like thing, you know, it was just incredible. Um, it was kind of, I'd say it was an adolescence and it was curious and just wanted to play or something because it nuzzled up to the side of the boat then when it came around and kind of second last circle and then then it was gone and i kind of thought i saw it again or i saw the dorsal fin again that day but that day was so stressful because i capsized later on again and then i nearly went over three more times just somehow the boat didn't um didn't just didn't have the, the wave didn't have the power to put the boat over but yeah i thought i saw that the dorsal fin a couple what more times what kind of way what kind of shark was it uh brandy or what sorry what kind of uh, sorry excuse, what kind of whale was it uh, I'm not sure. I would say it was like a minky whale or something like that, you know. Um, nothing spectacular. Well, it was spectacular, but like nothing like a, you know, a, a, a blue whale or something like that. But, uh, still an amazing experience. And then one night, very close to the end, I had a pod of dolphins who um, basically were just playing in the waves, surfing the waves around my boat, going in and underneath my boat. And then I stood up at one stage and just had a look out the front and then there was two of them kind of leading the front of the boat forward, you know. And yeah, they were just, one of them breached as well and turned in the air like so. It was oh, incredible. Class. I was right at the end of my day as well. And at the end of your day, you're just fed up and tired and sore. And, you know, you're kind of sitting on a your painful backside for like 10, 12 hours. So it completely changed the energy of the day. You know, you went from being feeling sorry for yourself to being like just in awe of what you saw. You mentioned earlier, I guess, you know, not having any kind of contact with people for such a long period of time. Like, does your mind start playing tricks on you at all? Like, uh, not, like not like hallucinating or anything, but like, is it, yeah, does it kind of, yeah, does any kind of tricks start playing on you? You might think you see something in the distance or, or any mirages or anything like that? No, not, not so much. Uh, I, I heard, like, because as a solo, you have the luxury of kind of making up your own routine. I was kind of getting decent amount of sleep at night like I was kind of getting six hours blocks you know but you know, I've heard other rowers talk about major hallucinations you know because those guys don't have that luxury but if you're in a team and you know, you're kind of doing two hours on two hours off until you get to the end you know for about a month or maybe more so so I've heard people talk about hallucinations but I, I like I said I had a decent block of sleep I think that helped uh, help me kind of um, stave off those sort of uh, things which no it was, it was pretty um 
you know, pretty standard stuff. So you didn't think Steve Redgrave was wrong alongside you or anything? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I needed him at times. Yeah, no. And here I was like, it's. I, I was trying to explain it. So I was telling a few pals that I was having you on the the show tonight. Um, and obviously the story is just amazing. Like I've been dining off as well. I say, oh yeah, I know a guy who. You know, who rode across the Atlantic solo in work as well. They're all dying to know. But I was like, I was trying to explain. We were trying to kind of get our heads around it. And we were just saying, I was like, I mean, it must be so hard to not really have, like when you're in the open ocean, like you don't really have a point of reference anywhere. Like it's just, just ocean. Like how, how is that? How do you find that? Is it like, is it like kind of serene? Obviously it probably depends on if it's choppy waters or whatever, but is it kind of odd not having like land anywhere near you for, for that long? I know it sounds like a weird question. I just, it popped into my head. I thought it'd be worth asking you. Do you know what? When I was, I couldn't wait to get away from land at the start because we we were rowing from uh, Lagomere is the island, but there's one more small Canary island further west called El Hero, and it was in my sights for about four <laughs> days, and I was like, "Will that fucking island ever go away?" <laughs> <laughs> so I was delighted when I actually got rid of it, and then uh, now then you're like you're like I said, you're just in this crazy survival mode. You're constant. You're in this like heightened state of concentration looking at what the waves are doing that are coming at you and you know what you how you have to uh, maneuver the boat judging on those or for example you might be um sometimes you guide yourself right, with, with clouds you know you pick a cloud line and just try and stay on that or you'd be constantly looking between the compass and the clouds or the compass and the stars or whatever the compass is between my legs so yeah you're you're in a, a kind of a very strange um state you know you're 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 in this really intense kind of concentration. So, you know, especially in big conditions, when it's when it's a bit calmer, you're a little bit more relaxed or whatever. But, uh, yeah, no, constantly going between the compass for, for guidance, you know, and just to make sure you're on your your track, um, which is your track is basically whatever line you're taking and your bearing is um, the, where you should be going exactly. And you're just trying to, um, you're trying to pair the two of them up, you know, your track should be your bearing and, Bearing should be your track. Um, what was Christmas Day like out in the open water? Do you know what? It was good. It was actually great. One of the better days because um, I don't know. I just I had a lot of obviously um, I had a lot of phone calls. I, that was a day. Obviously, I had the sat phone on kind of most of the day, and I was getting texts throughout the day and phone calls. And the sunrise was absolutely incredible. And I, I sent a little video to my brother. Um, and uh, you know, I talked to my parents a couple of times during that day, and the conditions were really good. They were really favourable for rowing, and they weren't too big, and the boat was chucking along nicely. So that was um, that was one of the um, one of the better days. You know, it's kind of like a, it's you know, you you think a lot about two days in particular, Christmas Day and and New Year's Day um, before the race. You know, so they're kind of almost like. Um, what would you say? They're almost like milestones that you're aiming for. And when they come, then you're on a, a the, you treat the day as a little bit more of a, a little bit more special, you know? So, you know, with all that going on as well, it just made the day actually quite enjoyable. It's when you come crashing down the next day on like St. Stephen's day, when you have nobody talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's out in the piss. Everyone's hung over. Really shit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But did you were you able to have a were you able to have turkey and stuffing on Chris in the boat or what, what did you have for dinner? Oh God, no! I wish uh, God, I, I can't even remember. It was all whatever. It's all dehydrated rations. So I had uh, basically had nothing special on that day. Well, I might have had a, a bar of chocolate or something, but uh, yeah, no, whatever I packed for that day, which was random. 
that's what I asked. There was no uh, no remnants of um, of Christmas dinner in here. And uh, just when, when you look back through, I mean, you've had such. I mean, obviously your your career. You know, you moved from kind of club to club. You were in Breve and you were in Leinster. You, you were in lots of different places. But like, what's driven all that? I mean, you, you, honestly, I, I would. I have to. I have to look up here. What, what's what's your twi- what's your uh, your Instagram handle, Damo? At uh, L Stock. At, at L Stock. It's A U L D. Uh, underscore stock, right? Yeah. I'm telling you, like, look, it's like the National Geographic looking at your 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 Instagram. Like, what's driven the the kind of wanderlust? Uh, I mean, rugby is obviously, you know, it's you know, you're in a little bubble. Your kind of your day is all set, but it looks like you've just gone. W- once you've finished, you've just gone a completely different route. You've gone for like a. It's I, I can only call it. It's a life less normal. Is <laughs> what's that's the that's what, that's the phrase. But like. What's driven all the all all the travel? The I mean, you're trying. It's looks like you're trying to see and do as many things as you can in as little amount of time as possible. But is that's what it looks like from the outside? It's unbelievable to to, to see. Yeah, um, it's a great question. You know, and I, I could probably go down a few different rabbit holes in, with answering. Like, but it's as, it's as simple as just loving life, and you know, um, been very kind of lucky to. Um, be in a position to um, live it the way I want, you know, and and just to explore a planet that I just absolutely adore. Like I just can't get enough of it. And the more I um, throw myself into um, life and its uh, possibilities, the more I get back, you know, internally, you know, and the more I learn and the more I grow and develop. And and that to me is just addictive, you know. I I just love kind of uh, deepening myself and. Uh, you know, so um, I do these things because I love doing them, basically. It's as simple as that. I don't really want to get too well. I don't care if anything else comes from them. That's enough for me. And often a lot of stuff does come from them because you're living really genuinely. You know, you're living exactly to how you want to live. And and, uh, and I think, um, yeah, I think it's just a great way to live. Well, it's it's for me anyway. That's all I can say. And here, I mean, like, what's the best? I mean, you've been to some amazing places. I mean, Afghanistan is the one that sticks out in my mind. But, <laughs> I mean, like, where's the best place you visit? Like, if you were to say to, to people, like, what's the most enjoyable spot that, you, that you've been to so far? I always say um, uh, to people, go to Iceland. Um, and if you're a little bit more um, adventurous, go to Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia is just a, an incredible country of all sorts of contrasts and very, uh, very interesting people, very interesting kind of um, place to travel around. Like they've got all sorts of different corners from, you know, in the south, they've got all the kind of um, the tribes to the, they've got the Nile running through it. There's an amazing kind of uh, whitewater raft and there's an incredible, um, it's a very religious place. You know, they do Ethiopian Orthodox religion and, you know, it's just so much going on there. There's a, there's a corner up near, um, uh, Eritrea called Danakil Depression where there's one of only five lava lakes in the world and you can stand on the literally stand 20 meters from the lava as it's spitting into the air like 10-15 meters into the air it's just just out of this world like I think of all my travel experiences that's the one that always kind of sticks out to me as the most kind of awe-inspiring I didn't hear any, any like I mean, it's just unbelievable that you've been to all these places. But uh, like any kind of dangerous kind of uh, ones that you were like, geez, I, I I don't know if I should be here. I'm in a I'm in an odd place. I'm feeling um, feeling like maybe I've I, I've uh, I've stepped into a place where I'm I'm in a dangerous spot here. I don't know how to even word this correctly. But any any kind of scrapes that you're near saying, death experience, near death experience. That is that is that the right way to word that? Yeah. Any anywhere anything that's kind of gone on that you were like, Jesus, what what am I doing? What 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 am I doing here? 
the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm more at thinking, time. like, I, I was, when I'm looking at it, I'm, like, thinking Afghanistan. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> like is, that a, is that a safe place to go? Like, what were you doing there? Well, we went, I went to a part, I went to the northwest corner called the Wakan Corridor. So it's kind of, it's so remote, even for Afghanistan, that it's um, kind of untouched by, you know, the 25, 26 years of civil war. Um, and, you know, we were like, obviously, there's, there's an amazing buzz of like, because I traveled overland from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. So there's an amazing buzz of doing that, and just entering a country where, you know, where nobody else kind of goes or very few people go. Um, but at the same time, that area is kind of, is a safe area to go. And I kind of, I knew that from the start, you know, that, um, you know, it wasn't as if you were flying into the Helmand province or something like that, you know. So there is, it's a, you know, it's an enormous country and there is safe parts of it. Uh, and then there is there is areas there where you wouldn't be going, and you know I don't I don't have any death wish. I'm not going there to you know uh, to to die or anything. So I wouldn't be exactly um, pushing but pushing myself going into those kind of dangerous areas or anything. But no, I've been generally I've been uh, quite lucky with my travels, and you know it's you know the, you know we're fed we're fed a lot of kind of crap about the world, and you know that's that's another reason I go I go to see it with my own two eyes and. and kind of discover the places and people and the cultures uh, by going there and by experiencing them. So well, they often come back and you go, geez, what was all the kind of trepidation about at the start or what was all the kind of, you know, the, the, what's all the kind of fear, um, what's all the kind of you know, the news you hear about these places, um, you know, is often just, you know, very kind of once-off uh, unique events and, you know, that's why they make the news. But, you know, everyone everyone in that country is just doing what we are. They're just getting out of their lives, trying to, you know, have a have a good and happy life and, and, and just live day to day. Just to go back to the row for a second, uh, was there any moment where, you know, okay, you touched on it earlier with, with day one and there was problems with the anchor and stuff like that, but was there any moment when you had to kind of think on your feet, a bit of, you know, Bear grills improv improvisation or anything like that? I hope you didn't have to drink your own piss, but, like, anything other than that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like a lot, there was a lot of that sort of stuff, you know, because things just kept going wrong for me, you know, uh, with the boat like breaking and then the steering breaking was a nightmare, and you know, there's like I'm kind of going, how the hell am I going to get across? Because I was doing it at a very um, basic level anyway, but just because using foot steering, like nearly, I think ninety five percent of the boats in the in the fleet had. Um, auto helms which are autopilots which are basically machines that guide your rudder so you don't even have to worry about the steering whereas i had to steer with my foot so the minute i stopped steering i was uh or the minute i stopped rowing the boat went kind of sideways to the waves and that's when you just get smashed and yeah so that even when that went i was like oh my god what the hell's gonna happen now like you know because i'd heard of people uh, one guy in particular having to cross um with the oars alone and i just knew it was you know really really difficult so yeah, that was that was probably the big moment. Uh, you know, that just made a very very hard endeavor ten times harder. You know, so you know, trying to um, you know figure out how you're going to deal with that and uh, figure out what um, how you're going to deal with all the kind of things you lost as well and capsizes like water bottles and just small stuff. But you know, they're all there for a reason. They're all important at some level. You know, and then you just kind of have to you know just just adapt and overcome in some way. You know, so. Uh, yeah, there's there's plenty of moments out there where I was, you know, uh, mentally and physically improvising. And just on the difference between, like, how did your body change between day one and day, like, 63 when you finally did finish up? Like, you know, what physical changes did you notice in yourself? 
Well, I had the tan of my life. Um, I had a, a hell of a beard and uh, I lost 28 kilos. I went from Jesus. 130 to 102 kilos, yeah. Um, and when you think, like, I was, I was eating between five and 6,000 calories a day and I still lost 28 kilos kind of over <laughs> two days. So nearly losing two kilos a day. Uh, eating 6,000 calories. So it just tells you how much you're burning and how hard you're working out yeah, there. It was like Leo Cullen when he retired. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen the difference? <laughs> Within about six months, Leo had lost. He was in unbelievable shape. He lost a lot of weight. But here, listen, like, what was it like kind of coming back into, I suppose, um, like dealing with people all the time, not having your, like, did you did you miss nearly having your little bit of kind of, of, of your own time, your own space? Uh, you said already you're kind of real comfortable there. You really enjoy your own your own space and yourself. I mean, have you found it kind of difficult getting back into a normal routine or anything like that? Do you know, I think we're just so adaptable. You know, we're just incredibly adaptable. And I, I just kind of seem to slot back into kind of uh, the comfort of everyday life. And um, I didn't really, I never felt kind of like, I know Castaway um, portrays it a bit, like he's a bit lost when he comes back. But I, no, I was only 63 days. But anyway, um <laughs> At the same time, no, I, I kind of just felt really kind of um, at ease uh, when back on land. And I remember going for dinner with my parents and my brother and sister and a couple of friends that evening after I come in. And, you know, I could have just sat there at the table and let the other seven or eight of them just chat away and I would have been completely content, you know. But, uh, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the case. But it was just noticeable to me that, like, uh, you know, I was just so kind of um, happy to be back around people and, um, obviously content in what I had done on the ocean and crossed to that. So, and then after that, it was it was just very normal, just slotting back in and just uh, eating like a horse and uh, enjoying myself in the Caribbean. And what was the moment like when you did finally, you know, get back on land and reunite with your family and friends and kind of, you know, get that achievement of having crossed the Atlantic on your own? Was it live up to what you had in your mind? Yeah, it, well, it, it, it's kind of a. It's not a, you know, you know, for example, like Luke, uh, especially like if you're winning a really, if you're in a really tight game and mm. you just scrape over the line by a point or two and you have this massive spike of emotion mm. with the ocean row, you kind of expect that. But the reality is like that, you know, you're, you're probably coming into the island for about an hour and, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a slow burner. Like, you know, so you're kind of thinking to yourself, should I celebrate now or should I wait another <laughs> kind of 10, 20 minutes? I crossed. When I officially crossed the finish line, I still had another 15-minute roll to get in. You know I mean? So I'm kind of going... In case you fell out of the boat. <laughs> when do I go mad? Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, so, my um, God. It's like the longest yeah. last minute of a rugby match ever that you're winning. Right. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the yeah. relief is just unbelievable, is it? I mean, it's a sense of accomplishment. I mean, like, yeah. I almost say, like, it must be fairly emotional, is it? No, it is. It definitely yeah. is. Like, I mean, when I crossed the line... Um, you know, because it was so difficult out there and it was such hardships when I just crossed the finish line and they blow the horn or whatever and there's just a couple of boats floating around you and you have a flare and that, like, I mean, there was a few tears there and then I was like, okay, I still got to roll 15 minutes kind of get into the dock <laughs> and then you get in there and then you're, you're, you're met with your family and then there's a huge crowd there because the Antiguans really get behind the row and they all come out to kind of to welcome you in, you know. So and there's a lot of noise and flares and all the super yachts and all the yachts are blowing their horns. So, yeah, you've, yeah, it's incredibly emotional. Then you're reunited with your parents and you're just sharing that kind of, you know, beautiful moment, basically. 
Have you shaved your beard yet? Oh yeah, no, that came off there that <laughs> evening. Actually, <laughs> I couldn't wait to get it off. Um, well, I did yeah. see a before and after photo, and I actually couldn't believe how much you changed. Yeah, I know. It was. <laughs> I'm a pretty hairy man, so I grew out pretty, <laughs> pretty lively. All right, in 63 days. Well, look as well. You may as well. We may as well get an opportunity because you're still. I mean, are, are you still raising? Are there still kind of funds coming in and to those charities you were doing? It's probably worth mentioning that you were. You had a few charities as well that you were. Uh, you were doing the row four uh, and a native. Do you want to give them a, a, a quick shout out on the pod? Yeah, sure. Um, that was you know that was a really important part of the whole thing. So um, we've three. I had three charity partners basically. Uh, Medicine Sun Frontier, which is Doctors Without Borders. Um, they go into the front lines of like natural disasters, um, humanitarian crises, and the, you know a lot of them are you know they're all pro bono, like so uh, doctors and nurses and anesthesiologists. So very selfless, very brave, courageous people. So I just wanted to support them. Um, the second one is Madra, which is a, a rehoming organization for adults down here in, in Galway and Mayo. And um, the last one is a school for orphans and street children in uh, Rwanda, Kigali in Rwanda. And um, it's called Strong Roots Foundation. And uh, a friend of mine set it up a few years ago. And uh, it was looking like we're going to be able to um, build a new school for them because at the moment they just rent the building and puts a huge drain on their resources. So I think we're somewhere in the range of about 75,000 raised now. And we're still, like, if anyone wants to donate, we still have another kind of two or three weeks before I put a close to it and then, uh, yeah, head out to Rwanda and, and start, um, uh, start hopefully get involved with the school building. And last question, Damien. You know, you've done the you know the marathons in the Sahara. You've done this big row. What's your next big challenge that you're eyeing up? I have a couple in my, couple ideas in my head. Um, I haven't committed to anything yet because I, I don't know. Um, I have a few unanswered questions, basically. But I definitely uh, look at doing another ocean row or um, the Seven Summits, which is the highest mountains on each continent. Um, and I kind of want to make it a little bit more of a, a kind of group thing or a little bit more about the we and not me, you know, so maybe lead a group on each mountain or each mountain that's applicable to people and, and help them prepare physically and mentally for, for uh, a challenge like that. So that's the ideas I have in my head. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. I could see you doing maybe some sort of Ernest Shackleton, like Antarctic expedition, perhaps. <laughs> Definitely appeals, like you know. It's part of the I was world. joking. Good God! <laughs> Don't do it, man. Don't do it. <laughs> um, oh man, I've, I've just got to say, like it's honestly, it's been it's an absolute privilege to 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 know someone like you. I just think such an amazing life. You read about lots of people like you in books, and I'm sure you've read a few that have inspired you, but. Uh, incredibly inspiring story, man, and um, I can't wait to have a, a proper catch up over a pint at some stage when you're up in the big smoke. Um, but honestly, it was unbelievable to have you on the show. Hands down, our most interesting guest. And like <laughs> I said, no, seriously, like obviously, I mean, look, in fairness, it's an incredible story. It's probably not our, um, it, it, the story speaks for itself, but unbelievable to have you on thanks a million for spending the time and like i said donate to those charities i'll leave a link in in um on my twitter feed when i'm promoting and on my instagram so uh you know there's still time to, to help out for those amazing charities and damien thanks a million for coming on and a fair play like all i can say is fair play incredible story fair play luke uh, pleasure and thanks for those very kind words you're, you're too generous man. and next time bring a rugby ball called gilbert for a bit of company right <laughs> <laughs> cheers, cheers Damien. Damien. see you man thanks very much bye 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 bye
That's all we have time for on the left wing this week. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another podcast to review all the Champions Cup semi-final action. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or listen on independent.ie. So until next week, thanks for listening and goodbye. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the left wing with Luke Fitzgerald.